It's funny to me how vast a chasm can exist between expectations and reality. I mean, has a fast food cheeseburger ever looked even a third as good coming out of that wrapper as it looks in the picture? (laughs) Has anyone ever truly been satisfied and, and proud of their attempts to replicate a Pinterest project? Has anyone ever honestly enjoyed a Shia LaBeouf movie? (laughs) My name is Tommy Cummins. I'm on the student staff here at Plum Creek. And I very distinctly remember my first trip to the dentist. I was maybe five or six years old. and, And like most kids, I was incredibly nervous, primarily because I had zero context as to what my expectations ought to even be. And so I asked my parents what I should expect, and the way they described it is like I had won a trip to space camp or something. <laughs> like, listen, this is amazing. You're going to love this place. Like, there's this really cool chair that lays all the way back, and then like, raises you high up in the air. And there'll be this really bright light that he pulls down, and it kind of looks like a UFO. It's so awesome. And he's wearing this cool mask that covers his mouth and his hair, so he looks like a fighter pilot a little bit. And he's got these really cool, shiny toys, I mean, tools that he uses to, like, you know, work in your mouth. And, oh, my goodness, you're going to love it. And if he has to do a lot of work, he'll give you this medicine that makes you feel like you're flying around the room. And at the end of all of it, he'll give you a free toothbrush. A free toothbrush, it's awesome. So I was like, listen, you need to take me to this dentist guy right now. So a few days later, when I actually made it to the dentist's office, I walk in and I'm like, it's, it's, it's everything I dreamed. It's exactly how they said it would be until he grabbed the tools and started poking around in my mouth. And it hurt a lot. And I remember thinking, Mom, Dad, I feel like we may have glossed over a few details here. I feel like there was too much emphasis put on the free toothbrush and not nearly enough emphasis put on the lightning bolts of pain that this man would induce for about 20 minutes. But I was, I was a little trooper, so I powered through, not, not because I was super tough, but because I just kept thinking, I'll go through anything as long as he lets me spit in this little sink at the end. This is going to be amazing. So he finishes up, he takes his mask off, and he says, all right, Tommy, it looks like we've got to fill about eight cavities. Eight. That number just kept reverberating through my brain. Eight? Eight cavities? I mean, my parents said I might have one or two, but good grief, eight cavities? My parents are going to be so proud of me. I'm such an overachiever. They, they think there's no way they expected this. I mean, this has got to be some kind of record. They're going to give me a medal for this. Eight cavities. Clearly, I was not great at picking up on social cues at this point in my life. And I think the dentist recognized that I was misreading his tone just a little bit. So he's like, well, let me describe to you what this means. 
But again, as he starts talking, I'm just thinking, eight cavities, I'm amazing. This is awesome. He starts talking and describing, and I'm just like... is not worth a free toothbrush. <laughs> You're going to do what to me? It's funny how sometimes those expectations and the reality don't quite match up. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Gary start off a, a great new series for us called Gold from Golgotha. They did an awesome job. It's the idea that the right words spoken at the right time from the right person, those are like golden nuggets of truth. We, we ought to perk up. We ought to pay attention a little bit. Golgotha, the, the place of the skull where Jesus hung like a bridge from heaven to earth, allowing us to get to God. Golgotha, where the Son of God died so that the sons and daughters of man could live. Golgotha, where the enemy did his worst, but God did his best. And Pastor Gary painted this picture for us last week that the excruciating pain that Jesus was in and the, the crazy pressure that was put on his lungs from being hung on a cross, it made it so difficult to even breathe, much less to take the effort to speak and so if you went to all that effort, surely these words, the, these golden nuggets from Golgotha, they've got to hold some incredible weight. We ought to be paying attention. And it's kind of interesting that Jesus' first statement on the cross was a prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Leave them alone. But his second statement, as we'll see today, was an answer to a prayer. If you have your Bibles or your devices, I'd love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Don't worry if you don't have, we'll, we'll have it up on the screen for you. But as you turn to Luke chapter 23, let me say a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the incredible opportunity to be here today, to be in your presence. God, I just pray that you would, you would just focus our hearts and our minds on what we're going to discuss today, God, because we believe that there is a ton of weight in the words that you spoke. God, help us to live lives that would glorify you, and may you be glorified in this place. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 35, says, The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And in verse 40, but the criminal protested, the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but 
This man has done, hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' second statement from the cross, the second nugget of gold from Golgotha, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, it's been said that three men died that day. A sinner, a savior, and a saint. But I can assure you that no one thought of either of these criminals as saints at the beginning of that day. These guys, Matthew says that they uh, were revolutionaries. They were insurrectionists. Their crimes were so terrible that they were being put to death for their crimes. In fact, there's a lot of theologians that believe that these two criminals that died next to Jesus were actually like the cronies, the henchmen, at the very least the accomplices of a guy named Barabbas. You may have heard of the name Barabbas before. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. He too was an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, but he was also a murderer. And Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. The cross that Jesus was crucified on was meant for Barabbas. That's why they think these two guys were probably in on it with Barabbas. And actually, the governor that was overseeing this whole trial, a guy named Pontius Pilate, he couldn't find any fault in Jesus. And so he does what any good parent would do, and he's like, okay, you've got a couple options here. We can let Jesus go. It's not that bad. I, can't, I don't see any reason to kill this guy. Or if you want, I'll let Barabbas go, this terrible murderer that all of you hate. Nobody wants this guy left in society Parents, we do this all the time, right? Like you give multiple choices and use reverse psychology. That's the best way to get a tiny terrorist to do what you want them to do, okay? <laughs> Except that it, it backfires on Pontius Pilate. He thinks, okay, this is a slam dunk. There's no way they want Barabbas in their midst, but that's exactly what the crowds call for. No, 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 you need to crucify Jesus, free Barabbas. Barabbas deserved to die for his crimes, and yet he was allowed to live because Jesus died in his place. Folks, this is the gospel. This is a perfect picture of the gospel. We are Barabbas. We are the sinners. We are the ones that deserve death. And yet Jesus died in our place so that we could have life. This is a perfect picture of the good news of the gospel, but imagine how the criminals must have felt of thinking, okay, Barabbas, the murderer, the guy who actually pulled the trigger, sure, we might have been there, but he pulled the trigger and he gets to go free, but we're the ones that are going to be tortured and executed? Okay, it might be a little anachronistic to say pulled the trigger, right? Like there weren't guns in that day, but you get the idea of maybe how they must have been feeling that Barabbas got to go free and so it's no wonder that Matthew 27, 44 says, even the revolutionaries who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. But it is a little surprising to think they both were mocking Jesus, ridiculing him. And yet in the matter of minutes, hours at the most, 
the hearts of one of them is, is turned toward Jesus. It's crazy to think how quickly that, that switch takes place. I mean, talk about a 180. If you want to understand the complete simplicity of salvation, here it is. It's perfectly simple. It's not complicated. Let your hearts be turned to Jesus. Admit and confess our sins and then cry out to Jesus. That's all this guy does. He admits, we deserve this. And he cries out to Jesus. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He just says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus' response to this, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think we have a tendency sometimes to way overcomplicate the gospel and the beauty of salvation. So here's the first thing I want you to write down if you're taking notes today. There is a big difference between how you grow as a Christian and how you become a Christian. There's a huge difference between how we grow as Christians and how we become Christians. And I think sometimes we get those ideas kind of mixed up sometimes. Because, again, in this instance, it doesn't even ask for forgiveness, just I'm a sinner, Jesus, I need you. It's that simple. I'm a sinner, Jesus, I need you. I deserve this, you didn't deserve this. Crying out to God, that's the essence of what the criminal does here. He isn't baptized, he doesn't go to any Bible studies, they don't start chucking communion wafers up at him while he's hanging on the cross. None of these things happen. He simply admits he's a sinner and cries out to Jesus. It really, becoming a Christian is that simple. Being a Christ follower, there's going to be some growth that has to happen, certainly, but we can't confuse that growth process with what it takes to become a Christian. And I think we get that mixed up sometimes. Like, we can clearly see from this interaction, God's love will meet us wherever we are. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to fix anything about ourselves for God to love us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to do or fix anything about ourselves in order to accept that love. It's, it's simple. We, we just cry out to Jesus after admitting we can't do it on our own. And certainly that growth process is important. God, his, his love will meet us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He wants so badly to help us walk out of those patterns of destruction and sin that are just destroying our lives. He doesn't want us to keep dealing with that stuff. He wants us to grow. He wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to be in his word so that we can understand his truth and his love. But none of that is required for simply coming to Jesus. That's how we grow, not how we come to him. That growth is crucial God doesn't want you to stay in your brokenness and pain. But again, there's a big difference between how we grow and how we become Christians, which leads us to our main thought for the day. All God wants is a simple faith. All God wants is a simple faith. Again, that, that growth process, hear me out, it's, it's important. It really, really is. But we have to make sure that we don't put the cart before the horse in this. We've got to stop trying to earn God's love because he gives it to us freely. 
And those of us who already are Christians, we're already Christ followers, we have got to stop convincing people that they have to do anything in order to earn the love of God. We've got to stop overcomplicating the gospel and telling people, you have, you have some prerequisites here. Liars, thieves, adulterers, bullies, homosexuals, drug addicts, we've got to stop saying, you've got to fix whatever it is about you that I don't like before you can come to Jesus, because it's just not the case. We've got to stop overcomplicating this. Are we going to need to deal with some of those things at some point? Certainly. But clearly from this instance of Scripture, God's love will meet us exactly where we are. God didn't design the church to be a museum for saints, but rather a hospital for sinners. Jesus said in Mark 2.17, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Church is not a place where we're supposed to have it all together. Church is a place where we're supposed to come together, pursue Jesus, and allow his Holy Spirit to put us together. This is supposed to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. There's a big difference between how we grow as Christians, how we become Christians, and it's, it's a simple faith. All God wants is a simple faith, which tells us two things. First of all, right in line with what Pastor Gary was teaching last week, there are no hopeless cases. There are no hopeless cases. No one is ever too far gone because if there ever was a hopeless case, this is it, right? A guy who is a criminal, he's being put to death for his sins. He's maybe hours away from death. And not only that, but he's mocking Jesus, the one who could save him, if he's on your prayer list, you're moving on to the next person on that prayer list, right? Like, we can see, we can recognize a lost cause when we see one. And yet, again, in the matter of, of minutes or hours, he goes from mocking Jesus to having his heart turned toward Jesus. How in the world does this happen? I mean, I guess maybe the guy could read. I mean, after all, right above Jesus, they, they put a sign that said, King of the Jews. Even if he couldn't read, we know that he could hear because he responded to the other criminal when he spoke. And so that also means that he heard all of the other religious leaders saying, you saved yourself, why don't you save, or sorry, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? And even though they were intending to mock Jesus, what they were really doing was confirming Jesus has saved others. And there's no doubt that the stories of what Jesus was doing was spreading like wildfire through this area. It would have been almost impossible for them not to have heard at least some, some of the rumors of what was happening. Stories of people like Lazarus and the widow of Nain's daughter and, and Jairus, widow of Nain's son and the Jairus' daughter, all three of these people, by the way, were literally brought from death to life. They were dead. Jesus brought them back to life. That, that news is going to spread not only that, but stories like blind Bartimaeus or, or the woman with the issue of blood or cripples or, or, or lepers, all of these things, he's, he's got to have heard some of these stories. And, and the religious leaders are confirming, you saved those people. Why can't you do it for yourself? And so it's kind of piqued his interest a little bit. And, and then he hears from the very mouth of Jesus himself, Father, forgive them, leave them alone. 
They don't know what they're doing. Who in the world would forgive these people for doing to us what they are doing to us in this moment? The words of Jesus, the red letters, they can change anyone, anywhere, at any time. There are no hopeless cases. But this story also tells us that the only way to get rid of sin is to take ownership of it. You can't ask for forgiveness of sins that you're not willing to admit are there. There were two criminals that died that day. One of them doesn't take any sort of ownership over his sins. You can almost hear him saying kind of tongue-in-cheek like, hey, why don't you hook a brother up? Get us down from here. We don't deserve this. But the other one recognizes, no, 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 we, we do deserve exactly what we're getting Recognizing and taking ownership of our sin is the first step in that process to healing. If you won't come clean, you can't be clean. That's why King David's prayer in Psalm 139 is so powerful. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Recognizing our sin is the first step down that path. And that's a powerful prayer to pray, but it's also pretty terrifying, right? Sometimes ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know what I don't know. I don't want to recognize what I currently don't recognize. Again, God's love certainly will meet you exactly where you are, but to walk this journey... We've got to start by taking ownership over our sin. These last words of Jesus on the cross, this statement, they, it helps to show us the perfect simplicity of the gospel, of the salvation that God is offering us. And all God wants is a simple faith. It helps us to remove these scales from our eyes of, of unrealistic expectations that we have set for ourselves or that others have set for us. And it helps us to understand that salvation that Jesus offers here and now. But his words also give us a glimpse into our futures as well. After we've, we've cried out to Jesus and then breathed our last, what that's going to look like. First off, Jesus' statement tells us that heaven is certain Heaven is certain. He says, I assure you, I assure you, this word that Jesus used, it was very weighty back in their day. This is not something you would just throw around lightly. This was like a personal stamp, a personal guarantee. Listen, I'm telling you, I assure you, it was, it was kind of like the equivalent of a confirmation number. And we love confirmation numbers, don't we? I mean, it just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Unless you're a little more cynical like I can be sometimes when you know that a confirmation number really does absolutely nothing for you, right? Like, it's not going to stop you from getting bumped from that overbooked flight. It's not going to stop you from getting turned into Mary and Joseph having to search around for another room at another inn because apparently hotels can't count all that well sometimes for some reason. The confirmation number really doesn't do much. It, it kind of, what it does is it points out the flaws in the airline and the hotel system but it ought to give us great 
confidence as Christians to know a promise is only as good as the one making it, right? And so that's why it's so important that Jesus says, I assure you. Because a, a promise from God is as good as a promise fulfilled. God always keeps his word. The concept of hope in the Bible, it's way less of a, gee, wouldn't it be nice if. Hope in the Bible is, is an assurance, it's a confidence that God is going to do what God said God would do. It's a confidence that we serve a God who always fulfills his promises to us. And the promise the assurance that Jesus is giving to this criminal and extends to us as well is, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Heaven is certain. But his statement also tells us that heaven is near. Heaven is near. It's not that when you die, you, you get on this intergalactic shuttle and you fly off for tens of thousands of light years and then suddenly... Eventually, you get to this far-off place where God is looking down on you. He just has really good vision to see from really far away. Now, we actually, we can tell from this text that heaven is no more than a three-hour journey away, all right? It's, it's true, because Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. We know from Scripture that he died about 3 p.m., and so did both of the criminals within about a half-hour window of him. And for the Jews in those days, the end of the day was at sundown, which would have been about 6 p.m., which means it can't be more than three hours away. Jesus said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. But I have a feeling it's a lot closer than that, even, because in Acts chapter 7, the, the first martyr, Stephen, he, he's about to be put to death, and he looks up and he says, behold, I see heaven opening up and, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, the Father, it's within seeing distance. Perhaps like Stephen, it's this moment of we, we're about to die, we die, and heaven opens up right over us because heaven is near, heaven is, heaven is close. God is close, close enough to see. So heaven, heaven is certain. It's a lot closer than I think we believe it is sometimes, but also heaven is simply being with Jesus. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this concept of paradise, it would evoke the image of, of the Garden of Eden. It's, it's a walled garden filled with delights. That sounds awesome, right? <laughs> Except that, that that's kind of secondary to what he's saying here. In the order that Jesus says it, today you, you will be with me in paradise. Heaven is a person much more than it's a place. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.23, he says, I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. He doesn't say, I can't wait to go be in paradise. He says, I can't wait to go be with Jesus. Heaven is where we get to physically be in the presence of Jesus for eternity. And in that place, every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow. That's what we have to look forward to. But in the meantime, if we take ownership over our sins and cry out to Jesus, 
The sting of death and pain can be removed from us in the here and now. Certainly, we still have to deal with earthly consequences, but those things don't have to rule over our lives like they do for others. We can experience life in the Holy Spirit here and now as we work to grow and to mature in that faith to look more like Jesus and less like the world, to walk out of those patterns of sin that enslave our lives. That's what we get to look forward to here and now. And so, ultimately, this week, I want to challenge us all to just allow our view of the gospel, of faith, of our futures to to just be simplified. We just need to simplify how we look at all of these things. There's a whole lot of other stuff that goes into it, certainly, but, man, we got to stop overcomplicating it because when we overcomplicate it, we add in these expectations, these unrealistic expectations that just kind of muddy the waters a little bit. So if you're following Jesus already, if you would call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, if you're already taking steps on this path of trying to grow in your faith, to, to mature, to, to look more like Jesus, less like the world, this, this, this journey is important. It certainly is. If you're already walking that journey... My encouragement to you would be to write down, think about it, pray about it. Who is one person in your circle of influence who needs to hear the beautiful simplicity of this gospel? Either because they, they've never heard it before, or maybe they, maybe they have and just been burned by the church. We've muddied the waters a little too much, and, and they're just not interested in that God, that gospel. In the beautiful simplicity of the gospel, it's, it's inviting, it's, it's alluring. Surely we know someone who needs to hear the gospel. And if you've never experienced Jesus that way, if you've heard it maybe your whole life but never truly experienced the beautiful simplicity of a simple faith. That's all God wants. He never experienced that love, that grace. Usually, we we would lead you in a prayer right now telling you exactly what to say in order to experience that. We're going to pray, certainly. We don't need to overcomplicate it. It's, It's that simple as we see from this criminal. Let your heart be turned to Jesus. It's a matter of can't do this on my own. I, 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 I am a sinner. Jesus, I need you. Again, he doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He just says, remember me. In your own words, I want you in these next few moments as we pray, just, just cry out to God in that way. There's no perfect formula to it. You just need to, to admit and cry out to him. I'm going to invite you, let's pray together, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes, bowing your heads. And if you want to take a moment in your own words to pray that prayer, I mean, we're, we're here with you, we're, we're championing you, we're supporting you. But for those of you who have already given yourself over to Jesus, I want you to spend this time praying for that person on your list. Or, or maybe, maybe you need to pray as David did, God, search me, know my heart, point out any wicked way, any evil way that's in me, anything that offends you, God, I... 
I want to remove those things because I want to have a better, more perfect relationship with you. God, help us to strip away the things that overcomplicate this faith because all you want is a simple faith. Let's take a moment to pray and then I'll close this out. thank you for your amazing love and your amazing grace that you give to us so freely. Father, I pray that throughout the course of this week that you would just begin to strip down all of the cluttered mess that we have made of this journey. Help us to just recognize the beautiful simplicity of being able to cry out to you and understand that your love is bigger than anything we have faced. It's bigger than anything we're going through right now. God, help us to just pursue that kind of childlike innocence and beautiful faith that's so simple. God, help us to be carriers of your grace and your love and to take that to others and to be able to communicate to them your amazing love. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen.